I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Batman Beyond. The DC Animated Universe Marathon continues. This was begun as a response to lockdown. We were all trapped inside in 2020, no MCU to chew on, and we were going stir-crazy on the Discord. And I figured, since members of our community were watching every episode sequentially, one per day, we could get multiple great podcast discussions out of this whole thing. In 2021, we covered Batman the Animated Series, which gave us Kevin Conroy's definitive Batman. In 2022, it was Superman the Animated Series, which gave us Tim Daly and Christopher Reeve's Shadow, but surrounded by the all-time best adaptation of The Last Son of Krypton's authentic Metropolis, and rarely explored Rogue's Gallery. Coming up soon, we have shows on Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, which gave us high but not unreasonable expectations for the big screen incarnation. And while we watched it, lasting chronology and are recording it last, I am placing Batman Beyond here, sandwiched between Superman and The League for a number of reasons. And with us this time around, Sean and I have a bunch of Beyond heads to boost the roster. Returning heroes, Toby Jungius. Shway. Kevin Vey. Hello. Chris Finnick. Whatever, twip. And for the first time, I think on this show, regular Discord voice, Bradford Yerku. Yeah, you even pronounced it correctly. Unlike the other four shows in this series, I have seen almost all of Batman the Animated Series before we started the marathon, a good season or so of Superman the Animated Series, most of Justice League, and all of Unlimited. For Batman Beyond, I had seen the Return of the Joker movie and the first episode. In fact, we covered Return of the Joker on this show back on our Digital Gonzo Batman season of Alt-12 in the run-up to the release of The Dark Knight Rises, along with the animated movies of Year One and Under the Red Hood, and I liked it then. But several things kept me from watching the whole caboodle up until now. It was unavailable on DVD in the UK, where it was broadcast as Batman of the Future! I had, at the time, not seen Superman, and I didn't see Justice League for a while, only catching up on Unlimited when it was raved about in Wizard Magazine. And then, in the years since, I was holding off until I had the context of all the other shows I hadn't yet fully explored, since it takes place 40 years down the timeline established in those, and the Unlimited episodes that involve time travel make it seem pretty complex and alien. Effectively, I was waiting for this exact podcast project and Batman Beyond's Blu-ray release to give it the best possible chance of me engaging with it. 
Also, it always seemed very teen-focused, and I bounced off Teen Titans in my early 20s around about the same time, and now in delving into the production details, I find I was more right than even I suspected about that whole teen thing. See, Warner Brothers and the Kids WB Network were wary of being left behind by the audience of growing kids that they had cultivated, so by the late 90s they were pivoting more and more to relationship drama content. Buffy the Vampire Slayer was huge at the time, as was Dawson's Creek. The new Batman and Robin animated adventures, which began in 1997, was less focused on Batman himself and more on his young wards. Kids WB, however, cancelled it after just one season, which we covered in conjunction with the animated series, because they wanted a teenager, but Robin, Nightwing and Batgirl just wouldn't cut it. They wanted, in fact, a teenage Batman. In a move that feels focus-grouped, the execs came to Bruce Timm, Paul Dini, Alan Burnett, Sam Register, Butch Lukic, and Andrea Romano and & Co. and asked them to make a new show whereby a teenage Bruce Wayne had to deal with being Batman. And this was not an idea that went away, by the way. The animated show The Batman that came out later in 2004 and ran for five seasons delivered a much younger version of Bruce, as did the completely forgotten Beware the Batman in 2013, which incidentally brought back DCAU, Stalwarts, Register and Lukic. But in their established Kevin Conroy continuity that they wanted to keep hold of, as literally shown in the theatrically released movie Mask of the Phantasm, Bruce doesn't become Batman until well out of his teens, and that process involved a mature, doomed romance rather than high school drama. However, the creative team didn't just want Kids WB to go to someone else and hash out the Batman five years too early. So they said, well, hold on now, wait a minute. We could uh, give you a teen Batman and Bruce Wayne if we set it in the future. WB exec Jamie Kellner responded, I love it. It's like an old samurai passing on his sword, which... Bruce Tim didn't understand, but said yes anyway. So they were greenlit for next fall on the spot, and now they had to develop a show around this desperately improvised six-second idea. And this is the danger of the elevator pitch. And if you look back, you can see many big creative decisions being made since 1989 because Warner Brothers demanded a new Batman to replace the old, often leaving the entire remaining DC superhero roster on the table so that they can go once again with the another incarnation of their special dark golden boy. Keaton replaced West, rendering him yesterday's bat. Then Conroy crystallized Bruce in animated form. Then Kilmer replaced Keaton. Then Clooney replaced Kilmer and then apologized. Terry succeeded Bruce. Bruce came back in the present day for some long-awaited justice. The Batman replaced regular Batman. Bale began with an increasingly preposterous demon voice. Brave and Bold recaptured the craziness of the Dick Sprang era of comics. Arkham combined the DCAU with Christopher Nolan's real-world grown-up seriousness. Dozens of animated straight-to-DVD movies detail Batman's adventures voiced by the likes of Bruce Greenwood, Peter Weller, Jensen Ackles, Kevin Conroy, and Adam West. Beware followed the Batman and tried to imagine a rogues gallery that didn't revolve around the Joker. It was not warmly received. Roger Craig Smith briefly replaced Conroy for the mostly forgotten Arkham Origins video game so that they could show us a younger Batman just starting out for a change. Lego poked fun at the increasingly grimdark direction this uneven pendulum swing was taking. Snyder's Batfleck combined Arkham with Frank Miller and a woeful misunderstanding of what makes the character abidingly 
really great. Joss Whedon then made him a sad sack. Joaquin Phoenix put his fingers in a child's mouth and no one was left unmoved. Harley Quinn rendered a returning brave and bold Diedrich Bader Batman as a supporting character that all of Gotham is always thinking about. And most recently, Robert Pattinson brought a floppy haircut and mumbling to the table. The entire world applauded. And then Kevin Conroy died and nothing mattered anymore. At least to me. This event hit me so hard, Batman was dead. Not a dream, not an Elseworlds, for real this time. It was on the evening before we saw Wakanda Forever and I spent a silent day trying and failing to process Boseman and Conroy in a single sitting because all the other names I mentioned above were playing him. Kevin was... Batman, the abiding voice inside my head, the dependable rock, the stubborn, shrewd, dryly humorous, passionate, theatrical, soft-hearted, real Batman. The rest is adaptation. Willow referred to, I haven't even written this down, and I've said it before, Willow referred to uh, Adam West as Silly Batman, and uh, cottoned on very quickly that the Schumacher films were doing Silly Batman. Um, she called they called Christian Bale Grumpy Batman or Angry Batman. They called The Dark Knight Returns Big Batman. <laughs> and they called uh, Kevin Conroy the real Batman. So this, this was not something I taught them. They just went, yeah, no, that's, that's Batman right there. And Always wonderful when a child is very astute like that. Absolutely. Smart kid. So Beyond had an impossible task, an entire TV show about a grizzled, bitter, lonely old version of this real Batman, this real Bruce, living with only his dog, Ace, played by the great Frank Welker. We're getting Welkered here. The only being that hasn't left his surly ass behind. All those years of not seeing Beyond reared up and gave this mysterious material an urgent requirement of excellence. This was my farewell. But let's go back to the 90s and Bruce, Tim and co. Now, they had made their elevator pitch. They had to actually make a show nobody had asked for or expected, least of all them. They lacked faith in their own idea, so the natural way forward was to look at what the this young successor to Batman might be. It was the future, so even more techno-enhanced was obvious. But being a teenager, he would have to balance his high school and social life, his friends and romantic interests, and his dual identity. Naturally, they settled on the most abiding model for this in popular culture, Marvel's Spider-Man. And here we have my first sticking point, because I wasn't just going in with high expectations of the drama that could be conjured between a grizzled ancient Conroy Bruce and some Mask of Zorro upstart he was uncertain about passing his entire legacy to. I've also been told for years and years by its fans that Batman Beyond is Batman as Spider-Man, and that's not entirely accurate, at least when it comes to what the creative team were attempting and how they managed it. Batman the Animated Series was drawing from 50 years of Batman comics for its characters, heroes, allies, support, and villains. Superman was drawing from 55 years of Superman comics, Justice League 40 years, and when Wonder Woman got her animated series... Oh, sorry, my mistake. On a side note, the teen superheroics angle absolutely continued within this continuity, with Static Shock, which no British person has ever laid eyes on, constitutes four seasons of a Miles Morales-inspiring electrical boy named Virgil Hawkins, and Batman Beyond spin-off the two-season spanning Zeta project focuses on a teenage girl named Ro and her robot companion. Woo! Beyond... <laughs> 
required the creation of a collection of brand new baddies. There were occasional nods to villains of the past with Victor Freeze and the rarely featured Joker's gang and a resurrected clown at the climax voiced by Mark Hamill, but they didn't just do new Riddler, new Two-Face, new Catwoman, new Penguin, as one might expect. By and large, they were brand new, thinly veiled Spidey villains. Ink is a master thief with venom powers. Stalker is a superficially very similar in positioning Craven the Hunter. Shriek is a more armored shocker. Spellbinder is a sleek and less goofy Mysterio. And Derek Powers is Blight a Norman Osborn analogue responsible for the death of Terry's father figure and the subject of a green glowy science project gone horribly wrong. And Terry has girl trouble. Lauren Tom, who plays Amy in Futurama, is Dana here, a teenage girl who wants to be with Terry and doesn't understand why he keeps running off and leaving her twisting in the wind. On a side note, there was a white guy with an Asian girl in an era when interracial romance was still taboo, so points there though it ultimately comes down to colorblind casting rather than confronting ugly realities. The other key lady in this mix is Max, who is African-American and a computer genius played by American-Canadian animation veteran Cree Summer. Max makes Dana look unperceptive by being far less close to Terry and working out that he's Batman immediately, winding up both his close friend who knows his secret and his girl in the chair. So Ned leads but cool and super smart, or Barbara as Oracle without having to be shot in the spine by the Joker. Terry McGuinness, born to Warren and Mary McGuinness, but biologically the son of Bruce Wayne, because retrospectively Amanda Waller injected Wayne DNA into Warren and science did the rest, deep sigh, loses the man who raised him in a way that makes him feel angry and a little guilty, swiftly taking the mantle of the new Batman in the first episode. The Bat has not been seen in Gotham for decades following the death of the Joker, the retirement of Jim Gordon, the rise of Barbara Gordon from Batgirl to New Commissioner, played in the first two seasons, by the way, by the wonderful Stockard Channing. Tim Drake retired from his role as the second Robin following a nightmarish, mind-shattering abuse at the hands of the Joker that he killed in a scenario partway between the killing joke and death in the family. Dick Grayson moved the Nightwing gig to nearby Bloodhaven and literally is never seen or heard of again. Batman spent some time with the Justice League in episodes that would not be written for many years and then quit after a deeply disturbing experience with the Royal Flush Gang. He continued as Batman solo in Gotham, presumably only with Barbara's backup. Alfred died and Bruce began suffering physically, eventually when attempting to rescue the child of old flame Veronica Vreeland, Bruce suffered a massive attack of what could have been angina. This would have been bad enough, but it led him in his desperation to pick up a gun, a scenario so antithetical to his code that he retired Batman altogether. Somehow Gotham went from the cesspit of gangster activity to a clean, dark metropolis of the future, flying cars and monorails. Beneath the surface, corruption festered and new young criminals who never met the bat start running riot. It's very much a revision of Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, with a focus on the Carrie Kelly figure of Terry actually stepping up to do the things a now feeble old man literally cannot. And here is where it all came crashing down for me, in a way that may cause a bunch of you to want to turn off, but before you do, hear me out. This may superficially be Batman as Spider-Man, but it isn't Spider-Man as 
Batman. More pertinently, it lacks Peter Parker and Miles Morales. When we watched Spectacular Spider-Man, the animated show recently, a fantastic episode we recorded a podcast on, someone on the Discord, I forget who, expressed that they don't like seeing angsty Peter Parker, sad and upset and torn between decisions. I think something similar got brought up while No Way Home was blazing through the cinema, and this just floored me. How can you want Spider-Man, but Peter isn't plagued by self-doubt and guilt and has to do what he hopes is the right thing and screws up again and again and gets thought of as an asshole by people who don't know the whole picture? This is Spider-Man. You want Spider-Man to be sure of himself all the time and get things right on his first try and absolutely excel as the hero he firmly knows he is? May I suggest Batman Beyond? Because that is Terry to me. He studies aged Bruce for half an episode, assesses that the old man completely screwed up his life and pushes away everyone who cared, and the younger man decides that is not going to be him, and it isn't. Dana, his girlfriend, is left completely in the dark about his dual identity and only gets kidnapped once and it's not about Batman at all. Thus, she takes no part in any drama that he might feel about his dual life. Max knows his secret and she keeps it and is also rarely kidnapped and endangered in any way that registers as dramatic. On a side note, constant kidnapping and endangerment of Mary Jane and Gwen on the big screen is a rift that has been done to death literally, and Peter's most recent decision to leave her out of his life that infuriated some reads as absolutely sensible when examining the past looping tragedies. But we all know that Peter can't not care about the people close to him and that he needs those people close to him or he can't be Spider-Man and that they will always be in danger. And having now seen Across the Spider-Verse, definitely so does Miles. Not so Terry, who very rarely seems torn or conflicted, rarely expresses any kind of affection or connection, doesn't sweat the moral implications of what he's doing. The right response is not elusive, and with his billionaire backer, he doesn't want for anything, and his mother and little brother are safe and never leave him agonized the way that Aunt May does for Peter. So where is the conflict going to come from? I naturally thought the whole first season was going to be Bruce drawing a stubborn line of this is what Batman does and doesn't do, and Terry crossing it over and over and clashing with him. And like, you know, Terry coming back to the Batcave and going, what the hell? After something, some kind of cutoff, arguing over the radio until Bruce snaps and fires him. This was a mistake. You're Batman, no more. And then season two would be the fallout from that, the ripple effect on New Gotham that reintroducing Batman and then taking him away would cause, the genuine need for there to be that figurehead, that bright red line that keeps the place from going under, that the criminals would rise to meet this new opposition and then without it would tighten their grip in a power war along the lines of Spectacular Spider-Man. That also didn't happen. None of it did. Bruce grumpily supports Terry the whole way through 52 episodes, three seasons, occasionally interjecting but taking far more of a backseat than I expected. This is all about Terry. But as established in the comics, in similar fashion to when Otto Octavius took over Peter Parker's body, coldly assessing his weaknesses and building him up to become the ruthless, superior Spider-Man, Terry just goes through school without incident, conducts a romantic relationship without confiding in the girl, much like the time-traveler's oblivious wife in the otherwise wonderful Richard Curtis film About Time, 
Commissioner Gordon grimly assesses Terry and accepts that he will be there to fight crime the way she used to, only interceding when Terry is framed for murder in one episode. Notably, Stockard Channing left the role for the third series and it was taken over by the much younger Angie Harmon. Perhaps as a result, she's dialed back and barely features from that point onwards, but across the board, Terry has very little in terms of tension with the cops, something that's always been a staple of Batman. He has no friends like Harry or Gwen to let down, and Max knows to keep him at arm's length, so there's never any romantic tension there either. What there is, is action. Villain of the Week escapades where Terry foils science lab heists and technologically enhanced crime. He does this with gadgets that Bruce makes for Batman, aerial acrobatics and punching, plus his flying car. And every single one of these sequences is accompanied by thrashing guitars. I was told over and over that this was a cyberpunk TV show, an aesthetic that lends itself to synthwave rather than thrashing guitars. It's, uh, I was thinking more Vangelis than Korn, but also a movement that speaks of mega corporations trampling little people in their unending lust for technological monopoly, and in a superficial way, that is there. But the heroes of cyberpunk, or the anti-heroes, the detectives, the successor to film noir notably, are usually themselves anti-establishment. Or they start out pro-establishment, like most 20th century sci-fi cautionary tales, but end the thing very aware of how terrible his former bosses made the world. Gotta be a dude, gotta be white, otherwise everyone else will have experienced those restrictions. Terry is a clean-cut white dude with a great education and rich friends. He has a supremely wealthy benefactor who keeps him perpetually supplied, something it's notable that Marvel managed to keep Tom Holland's Peter Parker from becoming too privileged by, since Tony Stark sucks at giving presents. And aside from a vague and never-dramatic vendetta against his Osborne, Derek Powers, there isn't a big overarching Cadmus plot like Justice League Unlimited gave us. No major arc for anyone to go through, no great loss, little great gain, nothing of profundity, and it ends on the last episode, almost like they just closed the door and moved on quickly to Justice League, which is precisely what they did, giving it a decent send-off with Return of the Joker and a notoriously divisive coda with the Justice League Unlimited Season 2 episode epilogue, which tied up as many loose ends as possible and introduced some risky story elements. This show suffers from middle child syndrome as well as springing from the creative team being put in a very awkward position by the network. The lack of connection to the then unproduced Justice League makes all the rich later developments feel like they didn't happen at all, because at the time of writing, they didn't. If it had been the final part of the DCAU, the follow-up to Unlimited, it would almost certainly have been a lot stronger in places that I found lacking. But we held to the chronology and we watched it after the League expanded from seven to dozens of colourful superheroes and... There are dozens of us! Dozens! The world then funneled back down to just one, with a brief and inauthentic Tim Daly free Superman appearance and a yawning abyss where Wonder Woman and her connection, specifically to Bruce and Batman, should have been. In other words, my expectations were impossibly high and very little was fulfilled, as Sharon and I plodded from episode to episode until there were none left. Now here are three things to bear in mind. One, I take absolutely no pleasure in being disappointed with this. I never do. I wanted to adore it. I have stated my reasons and now I will shut my mouth and rather than belabor them, I will hand over to our esteemed guests who will express why they love their chosen specific episodes. 
Number two, after my The Batman show, the one with Robert Pattinson, I got one single comment in particular that bugged the hell out of me. The guy expressed that he was disappointed as a long-time listener that the show wasn't balanced. Well, as a long-time listener, this chap should have known, I have never approached the films and media that we talk about with the prerogative of trying to balance the negatives with positives. I always try to find the good in things, and sometimes bad experiences make that difficult, but balanced arguments are not the syllabus. I'm not teaching you truths by just kind of aiming for the middle. I'm expressing my findings and delivering context along the way, always urging you to dig deeper yourselves. And if nearly every critic and audience member loved The Batman by Matt Reeves, and I didn't, that show is the balance. To force myself in a direction that I don't feel purely for confirmation bias would go against the reason I started podcasting in the first place. But, number three, in this rare exceptional case, I actually do want to fill the emptiness that I'm feeling with something more. I wasn't feeling empty when I watched The Batman. I was feeling, this is a series of ideas I don't like. And obviously, the, everything about that was about the immediate state of Batman and the future state. This is something that happened more than 20 years ago, and I want to like it. <laughs> So for me, as much as for the Beyond fans out there, I have brought in four good people who can potentially help to do that. That puts a hell of a lot of pressure on you guys, and I am sorry for that. But I don't want to do a show where I say this and then stop. I, 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 neither do I want to argue with you that I didn't find that about the episodes. I, like I said, I'm shutting my mouth and I will take very little part in the, the, the next hour or so. We begin on Shriek. Take it away, Toby. Okay, so Shriek. And every time I type that out, it's difficult not to read that as Shrek. <laughs> Same. Uh, yes. Somebody. <laughs> what the hell are you doing in my swamp? <laughs> Isn't that Shriek's real name? It's Shreve. Like, Shreve. That's yes. Right. I looked Shreve. that. I looked that word up to see if there was any meaning to it. Apparently, it's an antiquated term for sheriff, but uh, I don't think that has any real meaning here. I think they just sat, came up with it because it sounded a little cool and futuristic. Shriek, real name Walter Shreve, is my favourite villain in the show. Not the best, mind you, or the most thematically developed and person antagonist to Terry's development, just the one I think is real neat. His appearance and setup very much positions him as a Spider-Man flavour of villain, as we have established. He's a researcher who's invested in his tech, who gets dealt a bad hand, and then defines his new life by the powers that science has granted him. His ability to control sound and his suit make you think of the Shocker, and the white arc of his torso and bulky arms with the claws on the end, contrasted against his pitch-black body suit, just... It cuts a striking figure, and when I saw him on at my Blu-ray box, I thought, so is this just like a general Stormtrooper outfit, so this is just one of many hired goons? And no, but once I saw him in the show, I thought, this is just stays with me, especially with that blue eye that is in the middle that is staring you down. It's, it's a very good future villain appearance. But it's the application of his powers that makes Shriek captivating to watch. 
So using sound waves to generate concussive blasts is a familiar power trope for the superhero genre, but Shriek takes it further, thinking of inventive ways to demonstrate how frightening sound can be when it's turned against us. As Shreve says in the episode's opening narration, it's a neglected sense hearing, and it shouldn't be, because all too often, our first warning of danger is sound. And the episode commits to that premise. At one point, Bruce is hospitalized, and Shriek uses his technology to have Bruce hear voices that no one else can, and they're relentlessly urging him to put himself in danger. The whispered voices of, do it, you know what you must do, are foreboding and haunting. Uh, The series creators were told that they couldn't explicitly have Shriek say, kill yourself, or spell out him needing to jump out of the window to his death. But they make the moment work. You're under no illusion what is going on. And it's especially effective because it ends with Kevin Conroy letting out a scream of pain that sounds far too real. Shriek even uses this to put Bruce off his food by saying it's poisoned. And Kevin really delivers his lines with shaken rage and vulnerability as he struggles to keep a hold on himself. It's one of the moments in the show where you feel his age come through. And using the sound technology for remote mental warfare is one thing, but the silent sound finale is one of the most memorable sequences I've seen in any of these shows. The creators had an idea for a silent sequence, or even an entire episode with no dialogue, for a long time, even before they were working on Beyond. And they were very nervous about pulling it off and whether the audience would disengage, but they execute the sequence with great success. It heightens the danger as Terry struggles to keep his bearings of all the surrounding dangers in the factory and on the street. He collides with the car door and not a sound is heard. And it really plays with the medium of both television and animation to challenge what we take for granted when we engage with the sensory information provided to us. And it would be one thing to have a similar sequence play out with live-action footage, but with animation, it's particularly disorientating because sound is what gives the drawn images substance and helps situate you in the setting it presents you with. The absence of that sound was uncomfortable on a visceral level for me. It culminates with an eruption of noise that hits as hard as it does because of the deprivation of sound you just went through. And to tie it all off, the closing moment is so good. Bruce explains that he knew the voices weren't coming from his own head because one, I'm not psychotic. Of course you're not, Bruce. And two, the voices kept calling him Bruce, which is not what he refers to himself as inside his mind. And I love that. It rings so true to his character. But what I love even more is Terry's response where he says, oh, yeah, I suppose you would but that's my name now. It doesn't meet a, it doesn't miss a beat at cementing his personality either. End of presentation. Looks like nobody's been inside in years. Phrasing? What else can you tell me? Sorry, I wasn't exactly awake when they brought me here, but... But what? Terry? Terry! You all right? Answer me! It's the old guy, isn't it? 
Tell him you're at the old Gotham Hills Arena and he should come right away. Hey! Phrasing! Looks like nobody's been inside in years. All right, then. Yes, the show is 80% sex noises. Uh, tell him. Phrasing. Shut up! He'll be here. What is he? Your father? Yes. Grandfather? Also, yes. Well, I'll find out soon enough. It's not worth it. Sharon, yes. yours is Disappearing Ink, it which is. is actually... Ink is my favourite. It's it's churlish to say she's just mm -hmm. Venom. She's not at all like Venom in personality, just power type. Um, but she's my favourite too, uh, in the in the rogues gallery section. Especially and with that later episode with her daughter. I was, I've actually picked the middle episode of Ink's trilogy, if you mm. like. But it is the character that I really want to talk about, rather than the episode itself, mm. because there's, there's she has something of an arc. Uh, she does, yeah, and, and something part of, an arc. of what I, I stand by what is, I said before is built here concludes in her third chapter, which is Inkling. Her name is ripe for pun titles. Mm. <laughs> so uh, she's, she's set up in her first episode, Blackout, and in Disappearing Ink, she has been captured and is being held in some kind of prison that has accommodated for her power set, which, as you said, she is similar in composition to Venom in the sense that she's been chemically altered to be able to shape herself like water. Mm -hmm. And she can flatten herself against surfaces. She can like flat Stanley. Uh, shapeshift to mimic whatever she chooses and generally is very difficult to get hold of and keep hold of. So yeah. having her captured at the beginning of this episode was quite an achievement. They should have tried both Fire and Sonics. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail about the episode itself, but essentially what happens is she's being looked after by a, a chap who has become somewhat enamoured of her. Mm. And in part, this is because the, the nature of her captivity is such that he can waffle on and on and on about his terrible life and she has to listen to him. She has no choice. And he perceives this as a bond between them forging. When she finally gets out with his assistance, she uses that perception quite cruelly to get him to continue doing what she needs uh, to support her in her uh, criminal endeavours. So I have put down that Venom is one of the key influences on Ink, but I would also say that she's probably the closest villain that Terry has to Catwoman. To Selena Kyle specifically, uh, partly she's not a big bad who wants to take over the world. She doesn't have particularly wide-ranging schemes and plans. She just likes she's taking thief. things. She likes money <laughs> and she steals stuff in order to get money. That's the, the, the basic line of it. She doesn't have the moral spectrum of any version of Selena that I've ever seen, but she does have a history and a future that make her behaviour in Terry's world a little bit more complex than most of the villains that he ends up interacting with. Side note, 
the more time goes on, the harder it is to point at Selena Carl robbing from exclusively the rich mm. and say, that right there is a villain, a sexy villain. Mm. Yes. Well, she, this is the thing, though. Like, if she if Batman just turned a blind be... eye, and he never would, but if he did, Gotham's still going to be okay. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's Most versions of Catwoman are such that she's not really a villain. She's kind of an anti-hero. Mm. Ink, I would say, is definitely a villain because her outlook on life is not the same as Selena's. She is very selfish Mm. and very self-interested and she has extremely little regard for anybody else. But that is part of what I like about her her three-part arc. Mm. So the, the design, the fact that she has this sort of... There's a wavering between her being in complete control of her chemical mutation and her powers mm. and being the victim of it. That there are... So there's a bit of a Sandman in there as well. A little well. bit, yeah. There are times, uh, particularly when she's, she's tried to do something and it's gone wrong, where she ends up sort of losing her control over her, her physical integrity and is at the mercy of whatever's going on around her and, and whoever's put her in that position. Which, again, does kind of inform on, on her character. Her arc is that she gets steadily and steadily more frustrated by this. Uh, so there is a bit of a shift in, in her attitudes because of that. There is a difference in, a, a sort of a generational difference in terms of the relationship that she has with Terry and the relationship that Bruce had with Catwoman. But because she's a recurring villain this does get a little bit more than than just the superficial. Later on, we find out that she is quite a bit older than Terry and, in fact, has a daughter about his age, maybe a little younger. Mm. Uh, and her daughter, this is this is what happens in, uh, in Inkling, the third part of her story, her daughter's as callous as she is. Oh, she's worse. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but but the, uh, the essence of it uh, kind of thematically links into what I have sort of seen as the overarching uh, examination in Batman Beyond of how do we treat the next generation. If you, if you perceive this as being from Bruce's perspective rather than Terry's, although it, it's obviously the show itself is, is from Terry's perspective, thematically, how do we treat the next generation and how do we expect them to treat us? And there's a, a bit of a parallel between how... Uh, Ink behaves or has behaved towards her daughter, there's there's a bit of a reaping what you sow element there, that she is this callous, heartless, I will do what what's good for me and stuff everybody else. And she ends up falling victim to her daughter doing exactly the same thing. But it's through absence rather than abuse, the way that yeah. uh, Norman and Harry's relationship degrades. Absolutely. What I was going to say about uh, Bruce Timm's input is that while a good bit of what goes on with Ink does feel like it falls falls into the for like all your kind ye are false, false trap uh, but what can you do? Bruce Tim's going to Bruce Tim. Uh, she does end up. You with can this... constantly point out that he Bruce Tim's. <laughs> That's what you can do. Um, but but the storyline that she has to me gives her character a little bit more dimension, a, a little bit more meat than what I got from uh, a lot of the other episodes, mm. and so hers are are some of my favourites. The actual Catwoman-style relationship comes... Because uh, there is absolutely no no heat between uh, uh, Terry and Ink. No. However, Ten, she's the girl from the Royal Flush Gang that actually seems to have a thing for Terry, and they, uh, they bond that way. There was a, a really... An episode where it seemed like she was really trying to go straight, and 
I, I thought, now oh, these two actually kind of suit each other way better than him and Dana because they've been on both sides. She wants to go in this one direction. This should cause Terry, I want to be this version of me as opposed to this version of me, some conflict. And then I realized near the end of the episode, Ten doesn't even know T- Terry's dual identity. I thought that would be the Black Cat, Selena Kyle reason for them to gravitate towards each other. It's just... She likes Terry. I was like, that feels like such a missed opportunity because Ten has a tragedy to her. Not as much as Ace, yeah. but it's a tragedy. Drag program Max Joker 1 to trash and empty. Transferring program. Transferring completed data file. Complete? No, wait. Cancel, delete, command, recover data. Do you wish a printout of students whose records match your parameters? You bet I do. I don't believe it. Terry. A joker? Oh my god! Hey Max, are you okay? You hardly said a word walking home last night. I was looking over my shoulder. I had the weirdest feeling there was a joker nearby. They won't bother you anymore. I promise. I guess you'd know. What? Terry. You coming or not? Hang on. We'll talk later, okay, Max? I suppose I owe you that much. But I... Terry, meet me at the Gotham Park water fountain at 8 tonight to talk. Or I blow your secret wide open. That should get his attention. Uh, Kevin, yours is the next one. Meltdown. Yeah, uh, Meltdown, which is early on in the show's run. It's, I think, the... Fifth episode? Yeah, fifth episode. I love the fact that the creative team decided this early in the show's run to have Terry take a crack at one of Bruce's old foes. Mm. But they did. But unlike most Warner Brothers executives, they decided to go the, uh, the less obvious route and choose a villain who's not the Joker. Uh, I kind of want to get into how they redesigned Mister Freeze. Really, because I didn't have. I don't have this in my notes, but I, I like how they redesigned him to have like the freeze guns on the uh, not quite like Iron Man's repulsors, but they shoot from the wrists and everything. It shows mm. a bit of foresight on Freeze's part because you know, given the fact that Bruce's Batman always used to use a battering to knock the freeze gun out of his hand, so that's a nice little touch. I like that in terms of design. Derek Powers's like synthetic skin from. You know, being blight, you know, is breaking down while in a board meeting and he has to figure out a way to kind of fix it. And the scientists come up with an idea of like, well, we could clone your body, you know, and, and transfer your consciousness over and stuff like that. And they decide to test it on somebody. And that person happens to be Victor Freeze, where they somehow have his head from the his previous DCAU appearance, you know, cold storage, as it were. So they test it on him and it seems to work. You know, but then reverts back to Mr. Freeze, but but not before he actually does make an effort to change his ways and be better and everything, which I kind of like that Terry was willing to give Freeze the benefit of the doubt in terms of that, and Bruce, uh, which kind of echoes a bit of the more compassionate Batman that Bruce was back in the day, you know? Although Bruce himself was is a little more jaded and skeptical about it, although... Given the fact that in his last DCAU appearance, Freeze turned his freeze gun on Alfred, I can't say I blame Bruce in that regard. Hmm. Yeah, but, Freeze in yeah. the uh, New Adventures of Batman and Robin yeah. was, as we established in that episode, 
way more of a dick than he began. It, he was an yeah, art-destroying asshole. So, in a way, in a way, this episode is kind of like a return to the kind of the tragic monster of Heart of Ice, for lack of a better way to put it, really, but mm. with a minor twist. And uh, but it also kind of hammers home the darker tone of the show, really, by showing that. Like once Freeze goes back to full villain mode, you know, actually commits his first on-screen murder. That moment is one of the darkest of the show, and it still sticks with me. He, oh, yeah. he, you will feel some momentary discomfort, and then yeah, yeah. which is an echo of that moment where before when they transfer his consciousness to the clone body. And the title of the episode is also has a double meaning in that it's not only the return of Mister Freeze and subsequently his death but it's also the debut of blight himself as a super uh, as a super villain really nice so in a way it kind of gives it a kind of out with the old in with the new kind of subtext Mm. and i think what lends real deep credence to that whole mindset is the fact that this would be actually the final time michael ansara would play mr freeze in the actual canonical dcau he would only reprise the role one last time in a game called batman vengeance which took its cues from the new batman adventures and oh nice what really stays with me the most in this episode is the fact that after the buildings like collapsing everything uh Terry actually goes out of his way to try to help Freeze and help him escape. It's like, come on, I'll let me help you out, man. Freeze's last words, he's like, believe me, you're the only one who cares. Damn. The innocence of that teenager. Yeah. It's still one of the best final lines from a villain in basically oh, yeah. superhero. It, it, it's almost up there with that whole I will not die a monster thing with Doc Ock and Spider-Man yeah. 2 for me. Yeah. A moment that I really enjoy in that episode is halfway through when Freeze is still has the chance to live a new life and put the old one to rest. He's in a graveyard and I believe that's where they say they buried his head after it was done. So, But while they're there, he's attacked by someone and it's revealed that that person is someone who was the victim of one of his past crimes where I forget exactly who it was that his freeze gun took from this person, but he is going after him and it's his past sins coming up to coming back to haunt him. The episode making time for that is appreciated because it shows the breadth of a villain like this that Gotham would still carry the scars of the actions of some of those villains past, even if not all of them are still around. Boy, are you in trouble. Terry, is that you? Yeah, Mom. Do you know what time it is? I had to run some errands for Mr. Wayne. I'm beat. I got a call from your school today. They said you were sleeping in class again. Ooh, busted. What's going on, Terry? Nothing. I've just been busy. Yeah, busy with Dana. Your teacher said he sent home another demerit file. I'll get it. Hey, out of my stuff, Twip. What are those? Nothing. Don't lie to me. They're slappers, aren't they? I've seen them on the news. Mom, it's not what you think. The lies, the poor grades, the unexplained absences. It's because of these, isn't it? No, they're not even mine. Then where did they come from? I found them in the locker room at school. Yeah, right. Jeez, Matt. Mom, you gotta believe me. I don't want to hear anymore. You're grounded. Oh my god! Chris, your next one is Armory. 
like we were talking with about Mr. Freeze, I feel like Batman has kind of long been uh, connected with uh, tragic villains, like generally tragic villains. Like Mr. Freeze is the, one of the most obvious. Two Face is always up there, uh, but there's been plenty of versions of characters like Man Bat or Clayface or the Penguin or even some versions of the Do- the Joker that uh, redraw them in like a tragic light. Uh, so it was kind of surprising to me, like going through the whole show, to realize that basically all of Terry's recurring villain uh, villains are just unsep- unsympathetic, like douches, <laughs> like they're just criminals hurting people for their own selfish motives. Like we talked about, Ink is just a mercenary. Blight is just a stand-in for Norman Osborn. Uh, Shriek is just incredibly petty. <laughs> so he doesn't really have a, a like a set tragic villain they do occasionally dip into that with their kind of one-off episodes uh zeta is probably like zeta's not even tragic villain; he's just an anti-hero basically at the start it just becomes a hero but they're spread throughout where these one-off characters are just tragic villains and the the one that stands out for me is armory who is both the the episode name and the character's name uh, who I I even recall when we watched this episode, at least one person on the Discord says they wish he had gotten away at the end because he was so sympathetic. Uh, so Armory is real name. His name is Jim Tate, and he he had actually showed up in the first uh, Spellbinder episode. He's uh, the guy getting married, Jared's friend, uh, Jared, who is Terry's friend. He's his new stepfather, and they got Terry married. A friend, so, I know. Wow. <laughs> I, I, One of them I, dates I, a no. robot. <laughs> <laughs> There's an episode called Terry's Friend Dates a Robot. Oh I forget. Is it a Mun robot? <laughs> Brought to you by the Space Pope. <laughs> I, had, I had actually joked when we first started this episode that they, the, the writers had a knack of just introducing friends of Terry and Dana who are never mentioned again afterwards. This actually broke that because Jared, like I said, was introduced in the first Spellbinder episode and then shows up again here. And I think he's in the background of a couple other episodes. So yeah, uh, Jim, his stepdad, provides them with a pretty extravagant lifestyle. I think twice he bought Jared a car. He bought Jared a car in the first episode he appears, and then he buys Jared a car in this episode, which makes me wonder what happened to the last car. But whatever. Why are you buying Jared another one? Brand new Cadillac, brand new Cadillac, Jared. <laughs> well, a street fighter came along and broke the first one. <laughs> oh, my God. There you go. This is Gotham. It probably got blown up. Yeah. Probably. There, there are a lot of parked cars that get blown up in the many uh, guitar action sequences. <laughs> Now, I kind of just wish that was a recurring thing where Jared's car just keeps getting blown up. <laughs> Continue. Sorry, Chris. But uh, so Jim provides them with a pretty extravagant lifestyle because I, it's definitely kind of established. He thinks that's what makes his wife and Jared love him is that he could provide for them like this. And so he gets his money because he's a uh, weapons designer. Uh, specifically, it was for, for Wayne Powers. Uh, but then he... Uh, in this episode, he gets laid off, and he can't actually find any uh, uh, like a new job, despite being this expert weapon designer, which is which I think is kind of cool because it's it was topical for the time. Because remember, this show came out in like late '90s, mm. the start of the the tw- the aughts, and basically between 
when the cold, like the end of the Cold War and the the start of the the War on Terror, uh, there really was like just this because you know the ninety like we won the the Cold War. There are no more wars to fight, and so the the U.S. defense, the Department of Defense, actually did reduce its budget pretty significantly, and so people who had made their living in in the web and the you know the the military industrial complex, let's call it what it is, uh, they they got a lot of them got laid off. And, yeah, uh, they do. They have a similar plot point in uh, Metal Gear Solid. Uh, Ken- Kenneth Baker keeps keep talking about how, how like uh, keeps talking about the so-called peace. It's like you know the Metal Gear project was our last ace in the hole. Though that game in continuity t- takes place in 2005, which if it had happened during the War on Terror, they would have been rolling in money. Right, exactly. Mm. Uh, it's also, I know it's a, pl- th- a major plot point in the movie, uh, Falling Down. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's, it, that struck me as unique because it's, it's, you know, despite this taking place, you know, 40 years in the future, it's, it's reflecting something that was kind of unique in the 90s that was happening where, like, he's this expert weapon designer, but nobody is buying weapons right now. Uh, so ultimately, he has to get this under-the-table job from this really sleazy guy he's worked for before who wants to, him to build this weapon so he can illegally sell it to uh, I think it's actually they said the Kazdians again which is that the fake uh, Eastern European country that keeps popping up in the DCAU and so to do that Jim has to turn to a life of crime and break into like more science facilities break into them to steal the parts to build the weapon because it turns out Jim has actually been a special forces officer so he's you know, an expert hand-to-hand combat and weapons. And so he, you know, he puts on, I actually really like Armory's design. It's pretty simple. It's just, you know, he's in a black bodysuit and a black ski mask and just, he's got some weapon harnesses on him, but it makes him look pretty distinct. It helps that Jim, like he's referred to as big Jim Tate because he's a big fella, but like fit too. Like he's got a very unique build for the DCAU, which could get kind of samey with how it designs people. And and I thought it, I always thought it was pretty cool that he he kind of stands out as this very big. He's got kind of like a kingpin build to him, but he's very agile for a guy his size. He's the opposite end of the scale to Spellbinder, who is a very slight, jagged yeah. character design. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I also found him inter- like, I found him cool because you know, despite being he like despite being a weapon designer, he's like specifically focuses on non-lethal weapons. Like mm. he's got a he's got an EMP gun and a, a like oh he's, the the best was the grenade that makes like a wall of light like a so force cool. field wall yeah he's got a grenade that makes force field wall he's got a a gun that shoots basically like putty spray to like freeze people in place it makes him stand out especially from the very similar character of Mad Stan who is also a big guy with weapons but he's all explosives <sighs> focused Mad <Yeah>. Stan <laughs> is that the Henry like Rollins the always guy? impeccable Henry yes. Rollins mm. yeah. Yeah. he's like Blow it off. I hate technology and yes I'm communicating to you on a big screen TV which means I kind of have to use technology to tell you why I hate technology but my point still stands I'm going to blow it up yeah, using technology he's, he's, Mad Stan's a very paper thin Luddite uh, anarchist character. <laughs> a neo-Luddite. And Henry Rollins <laughs> plays him to the hilt. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like I said, it helps it helps Armory stand out from him. And also, because they're all non-lethal, it keeps him very sympathetic because he's he's not really hurting anyone. Like, the, 
I think he eventually has to resort to a bazooka because he tried to take because Terry keeps trying to stop him and he can't let him do that. And, you know, explosives are fun, like, oh, there's an explosion over there. But Batman dodged. I don't know. It's, for some reason, it's more sympathetic to have a big explosion gun than just a, a machine gun. <laughs> and mm. to Armory's credit, he actually goes toe to toe with Terry in the bat suit. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. He's he's very good at what he does. It's very clear. He's a very well trained individual. Uh, and so eventually, like, it reaches the point. Jared has become suspicious of his dad, of Jim, because Jim is very irritable and like on edge about the whole thing. And he eventually finds out that uh, about Jim being armory and how he's like he actually finishes the weapon and gives it to the the, the slimy weapons dealer guy. You know, he catches him in the act, and basically the same time Terry breaks in as Batman, and like a big fight erupts and. It's the the big sad ending becomes that like it's revealed that Jared and his mom like actually genuinely care about Jim. Jim's vision that uh, he had to provide them this extravagant lifestyle to keep like keep them as his family was false. They would have stood by him thick or thin, and they do. At the end of the episode, it's very clear they're still standing by Jim, and so Jim, you know, basically like well. He's got to make this right. And so he saves Terry from the weapon he designed and turns himself in. Mm. He's this a great more like Sandman as well, in terms of mm. uh, the struggle to just be a responsible father amidst uh, a very difficult job situation. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And so it's, he's, you know, like I said, he's just a very tragic villain. Like if he had just talked to someone, this probably wouldn't have happened. You, mm. you could see the flaw and like the, that leads him to this place mm -hmm. and like you know he survives he just goes to jail it's even mentioned he's probably going to get less time because he he's going to tell the police all about the the weapons dealer guy who's really going to get hammered hmm. plea bargain yeah exactly hmm. but he's and like i said his family is going to stay by him so it, it it ends nicely i wish armory had actually shown up again i could it's like very easy to picture him like coming back and having to help Terry, yeah, like it gets some. He could be Lucius be Fox. He could have been Lucius Fox. It, mm. It's yeah. it's a very obvious stand-in. Like, mm. yeah. There is a Lucius Fox Junior, who's the oh, head yeah. of Fox Teca. Mm. Uh, he got outed from uh, Wayne Powers when uh, Powers took over. Right. Right. Uh, I'd prefer you not touch that. Fraser. In case you're worried, I didn't come here to set up shop again. I just came to say this. Keep your hands off, Fox Tekka. Pardon me? I may not have the leverage on paper anymore, but I still have friends. The Foxes were a valued part of this company for years. I'd hate to find out Wayne Powers was involved in these attacks. Bruce, let me put your concerns to rest. I'd never do such a thing. Why, Lucius Jr. was still vice president when I took over. I know. You fired him. Yes, well, had to make room for the new guard, didn't we? So'd you beat it out of him? Crazy. Not exactly. But I do have some things to check out. Okay if I get some time of my own tonight? Phrasing! Don't count on it. Moving on. Here's what I'd like you to do tonight, my dear. Hey! Phrasing! Uh, Bradford, uh, your first one is uh, April okay. Moon. It's actually pretty late yes. in the, uh, the series. It's season two, episode 22. On its surface, April Moon is a forgettable villain of the week episode that is way too short. 
With credits, the episode is just over 20 minutes long. The basic plot of it is four criminals blackmail Peter Corso, a doctor specializing in service or prosthetics, some of which were actually used to make the bat suit. Uh, and this doc- Dr. Corso turns them into cyborgs, and they go in- on a crime spree. They were blackmailing Peter Corso by saying, we'll kill this nurse that you're in love with, that you've just fallen in love with. But it turns out she was in on the whole thing. And, and by the end of the episode, the villains in it are beaten by Batman and are never mentioned or heard from ever again. Mm-hmm. Just and, like Dick Grayson. <laughs> in him, in the comics, he's still around. Oh, good, missing good. An eye. But there is more to this forgettable episode for me personally, because this is Batman Beyond at some of its most cyberpunk. And in your opening narration, Alex, I do agree that it doesn't go cyberpunk nearly as much as it should mm. or as much as it could. Um, Not philosophically uh, but, speaking, it still looks the part. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Akita in- influence, a lot of Blade Runner, uh, lots of all of the nuances I see here and there. But uh, the thing uh, thing about this episode for me is I hadn't seen it before the rewatch. Uh, I didn't even know it existed. And once I saw it, my fancy was tickled. So much so that the next time I run the Cyberpunk Red tabletop role-playing game, I have to up my game because uh, one of the characters has four chainsaws uh, that retract out of his limbs, and I had never seen that before. So I'm like, game respects game. <laughs> but uh, one of the big draws of Batman Beyond for me is the mix of Batman with cyberpunk, even as late as it is. Cyberpunk having its roots in noir is a natural fit for the Batman mythos as a possible future. Cyberpunk as a subgenre has some common genre elements it leans on heavily. Among them are cyborgs, cyberspace, and rogue AIs. The internet is used in the show all the time, and everyone actually has a cellular telephone. Weirdly, a lot of cyberpunk, especially in the 80s and 90s, relied a lot on payphones, which mm. we don't see anymore. Because every cyberpunk author seemed to completely lowball <laughs> cellular telephony. In the show, a rogue AI has also been done in an earlier season two episode, Lost Soul. And that episode is also really good. Yeah. One of the show's best. But uh, I picked April Moon instead because of how it approaches cyborgs. That is to say, like a true cyberpunk story, even with its short runtime. Cyborgs use cybernetics, prosthetic limbs with brain-computer interfaces, artificial organs, and implanted devices. But cybernetics are often superior to the biological bits they replace or augment in cyberpunk stories. This can lead to psychological problems, a loss of humanity. Think of Buggy Barnes, the Winter Soldier, with his cybernetic arm. That arm has super strength and toughness, plus it never gets tired and it doesn't feel pain. But why stop there? Imagine that for other parts of the body, why not replace it all and replace this meat with superior metal? Why not abandon humanity entirely? Uh, In the aforementioned Cyberpunk 2020 and Red role-playing games, when you get implanted when your implanted cyberware reduces your empathy stat to a certain level your personality changes hmm. you become susceptible to a medical condition called cyberpsychosis whose symptoms are akin to anabolic steroids in fact cyberpsychosis is the backbone of the main arc of the show cyberpunk edge runners which i highly recommend so coincidentally the cyberpsychosis of total body prosthesis has been tackled in the dcau before in the superman the animated series of all places, with Metallo. Mm. Metallo undergoes a medical procedure and wakes up feeling no pain, no hunger, 
can't smell or taste. He can't even eat or drink if he want, even if he wanted to. He can no longer swim in the sea. He sinks to the bottom. But small price to pay because he's also ageless and practically immortal, biologically speaking. And in hours, it drives him mad to the point he rips off his own false flesh. This is classic cyberpunk. The only difference is that in cyberpunk, your personality isn't digitally transferred to a computer. Your brain is put into a biopod like Robocop. Now, the four cyberpunks of April Moon also suffer from this condition, albeit in the early stages. The other side of cyberpsychosis is where the addiction chips away at you, one piece of your humanity at a time. Harold, aka Bullwhip, started with a wrist replacement. Then it became a cyber weapon. At the end of the episode, he's asking for more. And most of the cyberware we've seen in the four cyberpunks who are called Harold slash Bullwhip, Terrapin, Nux, and Knee Jerk, I've seen in other works of cyberpunk. Though the chainsaws are a new one on me, especially since most cyberware is not retractable. It's just always on. The other major difference uh, from a true cyberpunk work for this is in a true cyberpunk work, most of the cyberware that the punks have would be available widely at a local mall clinic if you have enough money. And in that universe, though, Bruce could keep being Batman with an artificial heart that is better than any meat heart if he gave him the temptation, which he wouldn't. But instead, they went to Dr. Corso, who is what we lovingly call a ripper doc. And at the end of the episode, Batman overcomes the four punks uh, using a self-destruct code that in a cyberpunk story is totally something a ripper doc would do. The password is April Moon, which is what he associates with his girlfriend. When they say it, all of the cyberware just falls apart. Like you know, It's kind of reminiscent of uh, Robocop's Directive 4. And then the episode also ends with the moral that most cyberpunks learn the hard way. Never piss off your ripper doc before you go on their table. The last shot of is one of the show's most haunting. As an adult, it still surprises me it even made it to air. Bullwhip is saying, okay, make me better. Make me more powerful and less vulnerable. But he doesn't know that Corso knows he got played. So he's like, okay, and starts putting him under. And then the last shot is you can see Corso with a drill right over his head as he blacks out. Oof. No holding back. Yeah. <laughs> I don't buy it. I mean, Chelsea's flaky, but she's not stupid. She's not gonna make up some goofy guy with a magic eyeball. It's too crazy not to be true. Leave it alone. She's just a troubled kid lashing out at daddy. Nothing for you to get involved with. Guess you're the expert on troubled kids. You collect them, right? Sharon, yours is uh, next one. Out of the past, actually my definite favorite episode. Uh, this is the one where uh, Raish al Ghul uh, returns, or at least the concept surrounding Rachel Ghul, uh, in the form of Talia. Yeah, so this is a bit of a cheat that I chose this one because the the appeal of this for me is that Bruce gets an opportunity to self-examine mm. when he is confronted with the possible recovery of his youth. Oh, and Spider-Man style is conflicted because he has a serious choice to make and Indeed. it feels like there's a right and a wrong at play here. Yeah, so this and the... the other episode that was originally going to be my second one, uh, Earth Mover, mm-hmm. uh, has... Oh, was that really creepy one with the skeleton? Yes. Oh, yep. now, my God. Also... Yep. Yeah, that, that one, I hadn't seen that in the original run, and, that, and that's another episode where I'm like, how did this make it to air? How were they allowed <laughs> to show that? Yeah. Like they're fueled. Um, but that, along with this one, feeds into that multi-generational... Uh, theming that Mm. I was discussing before. So the 
opening of this episode, you have the seed planted for Bruce to recontextualise his past when Terry takes him to watch a stage musical version of his exploits, which is clearly modelled on the 1960s mm. uh, Adam West Batman. And oh, By the way, that is in fact Kevin Conroy singing. Yeah, oh yeah, I, I don't have... doubt it. Yeah. We know the really man good. has a beautiful voice. <laughs> He's a belter and I love it. Mm. It would be it's foolish not to use it. He was, I should say. Mm. I am vengeance. I am the night. I am that man. Batman. Batman. There is a song the good folks sing. Song the good folks sing. Batman about a hero on the wing. Hero on the wing. Batman. I am Gotham's darkest night, the villain's darkest fright. Turn on the signal light for Batman! Batman. You hate me, don't you? Lighten up, it's your birthday. Don't remind me. Good work, Cape Crusader. Once again, you've saved our fair city from those vile miscreants. They were no problem, Commissioner. For as we all know, criminals are a superstitious, cowardly lot. They plan and plot, but they always get caught. Their evil schemes all come to naught. A superstitious, cowardly lot. Took me weeks to get tickets for this show. It's Schway. It's Schwarbage. And Bruce rejects this musical out of hand and is just horrified by the idea that this is how modern people see his past. Because mm. one of the funniest moments in the series. <laughs> it is. It's oh, also yeah. the first time I think that Gotham, in general, comments on old Batman and new Batman. Mm, they don't like giving any acknowledgement that they know who he was and and what he did yeah yeah it seems to have he seems to have faded yeah so having uh, walked out and gone home bruce decides feeling to, like was this all for nothing yeah he decides to further re-examine his past by paging through photos of the women in his life and this was one of the moments just the the meta of where this appears in the creative continuity kind of slammed into me because the pictures that he looks at are Selena, Barbara, and Zatanna for some reason. And Lois. <laughs> and it always felt like me, Zatanna was way younger than Batman. Just, but but here's yeah. the thing: any interaction that they had really was was in the league. Episodes. Oh no, she was in one of the earlier uh, animated series episodes, but still. Yeah, Yeah. but but either way, I part of me was just going, "There's no Diana, obviously, because none of that had happened." No, when she went back to Themyscira and then never did anything else in the regular world. She also asked that I take her out of my scrapbook. Yeah. (laughs) Also, did you see Andrea there? No, no. Is she not there? No. Oh, for goodness oh. sake. That, that is, you know where Andrea shows up, though. We'll yeah, yes. yep, 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 yep. Absolutely. That was and a great that's, that's the thing, though. But that made me go, so she is definitely in this, then. She's in that continuity. Anyway, so so moving on from this, the uh, the prospect of the using the Lazarus pit, because uh, as he's looking through all of these images, 
a lady in the flesh from his past. Oh so. my god, she's sashaying her bum really sexily, and this is Charlie so Rogel. creepy. And this is going to be my my repeat call on these. Bruce Tim gonna Bruce Tim. Yeah. Um, if I ever met Bruce Tim in real life, I would shake his hand and say thank you for all you've done for Batman. But then I would throttle him and go, "What the fuck?" The- <laughs> <laughs> he'd be like, I had this coming. <laughs> yeah. They, they, if they, you they, touch he'd... Bruce Tim's hand, you better wash it off. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Toby. Yeah, there's I'm no, sure no there were other perverts on stuff. Yeah. There's, so, there's no, anyway. There's no Andrea picture, but he needed to remind you that he totally had a thing with Barbara again. Indeed. We needed to know about that. What yeah. is and it with him and Barbara really in Bruce Tim's he head? Come up with that. I don't all, know. All I will say uh, to close out this Bruce Tim stuff of us bringing it up again is. Put a penny in the jar. <laughs> okay, sorry, Sharon, continue. Uh, we right, ostensibly so, have Talia yeah, here. Yeah, so Talia al Ghul has, has turned up, and when the question mark of how on earth do you look so young and sexy when Bruce, look, Bruce looks so grey and creaky um, is that she has been utilising her father's Lazarus pit. Mm-hmm. And uh, this sort of brings up to the surface Terry's concerns about how much Bruce needs him, as in Terry McGuinness, and how much he just needed someone, anyone, to keep the concept of the Batman alive. Because the notion that Bruce might avail himself of the Lazarus Pit, which is what Talia is offering him, uh, means that he could conceivably then go back to being Batman, and Terry is then... At, at best, out of a job. Terry actually says, I think it's a good idea because he's looking at the only father figure he's got left anymore mm. and he doesn't want Bruce to die and Bruce has been slowly degrading over the series. Yeah, and that's true. And also he, occasionally refusing to keep himself out of the action, which was supposed mm. to be the whole point of Terry being there and putting himself at pretty severe risk. So this is both Bruce being given a, a difficult, tempting prospect... And feeling like it's the wrong thing to do. But both he and Terry are compelled to say, for the right reasons, let's do the wrong thing. Mm. Yeah, and Bruce is living on borrowed time. Mm. Like uh, he I did not know the I did not notice this the very first time I watched the show, but as an adult it sticks right out of there are a number of shots throughout the series in the right light where Bruce has yellowed eyes, oh, yeah. which are indicative of jaundice, which is a symptom of liver failure. And in the comics, it is firmly established he is in liver failure, among other things, mm-hmm. and ODing on painkillers because he has been beaten to shit so many times, oh, yeah. so much that he needs to in order to even walk around. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I understand why they got Ben Affleck in. Those daredevil scenes where he's chowing ibuprofen. Mm. Uh, The episode unfolds. Bruce uses the Lazarus Pit, and while it grants him a a degree of youth back, it also starts to mess with his mind. He suffers from mania, as do most people who go in and out of the Lazarus Pits. Absolutely. And he makes the decision that he is... Because Talia's like, it's just because it's the first time, you just need a few more, and then it'll... Oh, yeah, Rachel Gould was just so bolted down every other time he came in and out of the Lazarus Pit. Full of clarity and, uh, and, um, you know, decency. Not Uh, a strangler he was. (laughs) 
Bruce decides, no, I am not going to go down this route. This is this is not for me. Though not before you get to see a little bit of uh, Bruce and Terry kind of back to back doing some yeah, like, Batman really, and Batman. Which was so nice cool. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah, that yeah. It is one of the only two part points in the series where they have the Batman the Animated Series theme reprised mm. on a guitar shredding and it's amazing (laughs) 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 i I also love the fact that well they brought back david warner briefly for uh rage Mm. you know because you know i I mean as i mentioned in the batman animated series so david warner at the time was just impeccable casting may he rest in peace just a real talent i've been a fan of his work for years Mm. and i just I'll never forget. He 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 was Rachel Gould for that time. Honestly, I feel like it would have been a better idea if it had actually been just Rachel Gould comes back and offers it to Bruce, and Bruce is like, "This feels like a trap." Instead, uh, it's Sharon. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. So okay, so, so they, they decide that, uh, or Bruce decides, nope, this is not for me. So let's leave. At which point, all of the staff go no, you're not going anywhere, and he and Terry have to fight their way out. Then they overhear what sounds like Rachel Ghoul in a room and burst in to find Talia there by herself. And it turns out... Thank you, science. (laughs) Thank you, Bruce, Tim. Uh, It turns out that Talia at some point in the past, gave up her body for Raish to occupy. Now, how voluntary this was is never really established. I he wonder, refers to it. I honestly wonder how far Raish was going to go in the, like, pretending to be his daughter. Like, oh, oh, God. what if Bruce wants to um, consume they, they this? Go, they go light on that. Thank Christ. But, thank, oh, thank um, God, yeah. Wow, well, you he, learned some new moves. Yeah. <laughs> the, the way, I'm so sorry. The way Raish hey, outlines it, the way Raish outlines it, Talia made the sacrifice of mm-hmm. herself so that right. he could download his consciousness essentially into her body. <sighs> it's it, the it, same shit as the Wolverine. It, remember? Yeah, I know. Yeah. But it all gets a little bit gross and a little bit. Yeah, I'm like being I said, tactful. He's he's like now. How did Talia walk swaying yeah, her I hips? Know. Yeah, I want to be sexy Ugh. with it. So the reason that this had to happen was that apparently when the technology was initially developed to enable him to do this, mm. which there is never any explanation of how this technology works. You press the I don't science think I button. Would, yeah, exactly. I don't think I would understand it. <laughs> and science way. happens. Um, so bra- but, I beam my brain into your brain. Yeah, but it had to be somebody who had a direct genetic link. Now I don't know. Does this tie into? Damien? There's an episode. No, 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 I'll come to that in a second. Damien hadn't even but created There yet. is, There is an episode mm. where a, a, a deceased grandfather has been kept in a computer and ends up possessing the body of his yes. grandson. Lost Souls. Yes, Lost there was Soul. an episode. Great yeah, episode. Which one? Lost, Lost Souls. Got Lost it. Souls. Okay, so I, I don't know whether the technology that Raish is, is using for this is similar to that, but... <sighs> He, the old grandfather in the computer routine. Well, indeed. It has apparently <laughs> moved on in the intervening years, and it is now going to be possible to put Raish into a body that he does not have a direct genetic link with. So his plan was seduce 
So phase one, seduce Bruce Wayne. We can't find anyone sexy and athletic in this Get world. Him. It's got to be an 80-year-old. It's got to be Bruce Wayne. Get him wow. into the Lazarus pit so that his body will be useful again. Phase three apparently is profit. I have no idea what phase two was supposed to be. I could um, understand it if it was like a, a vendetta thing. Like, you know, we have fought so many times over the years. Now I achieved my final victory. I take possession of you. Yeah, have a speech that makes it clear that that was his intention. And maybe this would all have made a little bit more sense. But otherwise, it's like you, you are going to leave the body of your daughter presumably collapsed on the floor dead. Because I'm guessing... Talia's not in there anymore. I would, have, I would have understood it more if it had been like, I've had Talia on this memory stick <laughs> for yes. 40 years now. I'm oh, having geez. Bruce and Talia, you up. can have your body back. Yeah, so that, like, I can get my daughter back. You, know, you must do this for me, Bruce. Give yeah. me your body. But if no, you care about Talia convicted. at all, just no. to, yeah, like, you know... Omelet, make him... eggs... <laughs> Something. However, yeah. you reference Damien Wayne, who uh-huh. is the actual biological offspring of Bruce Wayne and Talia al Ghul. Created by Grant Morrison. And yes, he didn't exist at this point, but I could not watch this episode without thinking of him. And what this kind of fed into for me is that you've got this... It's, it's a little light in terms of how it's brought to the fore, but there is this comparison between Raish's view of his progeny and his right to exploit her. Oh, to- hang on. Uh, somebody went, uh, I'm not sure, uh, when I said yeah. Damien hadn't turned up yet. Thank you. Yeah. Well done. He did, in fact, turn up as the in Son of the Demon in 1987 as an infant, but not yeah. until 2006 as Damien Wayne in uh, Grant Morrison's Batman. Yeah. Right. And, 655. And, he, and in Kingdom Come, which is the future DC, one uh, of the characters is, he's not called Damien, it's, it's Son of the Bat in... Arabic, so I can't God. remember off the Please top. Please continue, Sharon. Thank you. Continue, Sharon. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, Point of fine. order but, made. But that's, that's fine. I mean, that means that this, this reference or this very oblique, subtle hint might have been intentional. But the this comparison between uh, Raish feeling like he has the right to exploit Talia because she's his and he can take her body and do what he wants with it. It's like she lent him her Volkswagen. And that is sort of contrasted with how Terry perceives Bruce is treating him as a placeholder for the Batman legacy Mm. rather than as a person in his own right. And I would say, because we have talked about the fact that there there is a bit of a lack of, of sort of character arcs within this show, but there is this underpinning idea that Terry feels that he is a a front, a tool, a mask, if you will, mm. for Bruce to continue having a Batman out there. Yeah. And the, the episodes that you're going to talk about at the end, Alex, are the, the ones that really close that out the most satisfactorily in terms of Terry coming to a realisation that it's not just about that, yeah. whether because Bruce's treatment of him has shifted or just that he's seen enough now to know that this is him. It's him out there doing mm. those things. It's not Bruce, however much Bruce is standing If this was a it. film, that would be the narrative yeah. arc the whole way through. That's the strongest aspect. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. You always were the perfect specimen, detective. Raising. Even old age has not softened you as much as I had feared. Raising. Though I assure you, this time my longevity comes at a price, most dear. Phrasing? At the time, this computer could only imprint my thoughts and memories on a close genetic match. But now, this youthful form has served its purpose. 
Was the purpose nailing Batman? Cause mission accomplished. I must move on to a new host body. Yours. Sure, Race, why not? Anything to hold off the Grim Reaper another few seconds. I take it back. You don't cheat death. You whimper in fear of it. Silence! And you hit like a girl. Don't waste your contempt on me, detective. When Talia offered you youth again, you fairly drooled to take it. Phrasing. A simple blow to your ego was all I needed to ensnare you. <laughs> this computer will finally still that insolent tongue. <laughs> Phrasing. I shall return to Gotham in your stead, bringing with me proof, both written and genetic, that I am the long-forgotten son of Bruce Wayne and Talia. How ironic that your company and holdings will fund my new empire. No! Lady, that is the sickest thing I've ever seen. You're creeping me out. Yeah, Terry. Me too. The bitter irony of this show is that we have Kevin Conroy playing old man Bruce, and he does an exceptional job of taking that version of the character that we know and injecting him with age and regret and jagged just edge and frailty but the bitter irony is that we will never see kevin reach that similar age oh. yeah that uh... stab me in the heart it'll hurt less <sighs> mr wayne those things i said i'm sorry this kind of thing ever happen to you? Let me tell you about a woman named Selena Kyle. Return of the Joker. We've already done a big part of the show about it, but well before I had this level of understanding of what happens in the future and the past to really give it context. Revisiting Return of the Joker after watching through the main series of Batman Beyond... I think this is a really great movie, but it is an even better Batman Beyond story. It uses every part of the premise to maximum effect. Indeed, the film's biggest drawback is that it goes all the way in a few areas that were obviously and understandably too much for many. I've only ever seen the uncut version before, and I'm glad that that was my first experience of it, because... You notice all the awkward cuts here and there, a missing slash in a fight or a slightly more limp and less impactful, though admittedly less devastating end to the Joker. Also, one cut that makes the scene have a very awkward beginning is when Price, the member of the Wayne uh, company who was going to take over until Bruce officially returns to head the company, is on a yacht and the jokers go there to tie up loose ends in the uncut version he goes into a darkened room while there's a woman lying on the bed and he's celebrating his recent success and then it's revealed that the woman is actually one of the dds and he gets surprised and ambushed and in the censored cut he still asks where's the girl i was expecting and you see that she's tied up on shore so you know 
awkward cut, but it is one less example that people get to see of Horn Dog Bruce Tim doing his <laughs> oh, usual yeah. ways. The the, yeah. the DDs are probably Bruce Tim at his most Bruce Tim. It's mm. they're, they're kind of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I love them a ridiculous anyway. clown. Never. <laughs> yeah, and also like one thing that I find kind of baffling is that in the flashback when Barbara is questioning. Uh, various people on the streets of Gotham just desperately looking for Tim. I think it was you, Chris, who pointed out that uh, when she's questioning two, think they're meant to be prostitutes, but one of them looks like uh, exactly. Black Canary. Exactly like Black Canary. Yeah. Who like yeah. at this point had not is, been in Justice League. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is either just a visual illusion or that girl figured, okay, I'm going to find a kink and exploit it. So, well, uh, it, it was probably one, and, and now the explanation is the other. Yeah. <laughs> nice. But, but in the censored cut, those two are completely replaced with just a pretty standard-looking uh, man and woman who seem to be on a date. So they were even like, nope, you can't have them showing up and just shaking their head. That's that's too graphic. Please do show uh, Tim completely broken from mental abuse by the Joker, though. That's fine. Um, so we're going to get our own cut of this film without blackjack or hookers. <laughs> I, have, I had the exact opposite experience of you of mm. i hadn't seen i first saw the censored cut of this i did not see the uncut or even know there was an uncut until i got to college mm. and it, it there's always going to be the sense of what your first experience with it is is going to be like the version that the story is for you but ultimately none of this is enough to sour the experience and i know that because uh, I was watching this with Sarah, who was watching this for the first time, and she really liked it. And in fact, by the time the credits rolled, she remarked how far Terry has come in her estimation from being someone she didn't really buy as a new Batman to a character she really liked and saw as a worthy version of another Batman. And the film, I've talked about differences and stuff without actually going into what it does, but... It's a tense, dark struggle of a film when compared against the rest of the DCAU. But in spite of that, I can't help but feel uplifted by where it ends up as a result of what Terry manages to accomplish. This does feel like the true finale to Batman Beyond, where the episode of him revealing his identity to an innocent kid feels a bit sort of like a anticlimax mm. of a final episode. Yeah. It, it brings everything in, about that was suggested that should have been Matt, but it totally it, wasn't. Yeah. yeah, it should and have been. So the film brings in an iconic villain with the definitive voice that embodies that villain. And hello, Gotham. Joker's back in town. <laughs> Can't be. Oh no, your old eyes do not deceive you, Brucey. After all, who know me better than you? Back off, gruesome. Ah, the new boy. Ears are too long and I miss the cape, but not too shabby. Not too shabby at all. And it uses the Joker as the focal point to bridge the past with the future. And it it calls to mind the ultimate question of what 
this whole premise of the show and Terry and Batman Beyond really conjures up, which is whether the future can escape the weight of trauma, regret, and the memories and monsters that haunt us. And the answer that the film comes up with is, with the help of the next generation, yes. For as much as the people who love Batman, the animated series, come to this film for that flashback sequence in the middle and stay for Mark Hamill's Joker tearing it up in this future Gotham, the memorable turn of all these series regulars still doesn't eclipse the star of the show, who is Terry. From his speech in the Batcave that sums up not only his whole journey, but how he views it as someone who made mistakes, who was not set up to be someone who had all this entire life planned and mapped out for him. He was given this opportunity to do something that made a difference. And for him, being Batman is something that he knows helps others and it helps so much for Gotham to have a Batman. But he says being Batman brings value to me helps me to be that person to work towards being that person and it's a speech that is not about what terry feels about being like following bruce's legacy or doing that it's what batman means to him specifically bruce's final words to him go beyond presenting him with a seal of approval from the original batman adventures into profound gratitude for what Terry has done to breathe life into Batman. What are you doing here? It's where I should be. Terry. I've been thinking about something you once told me. And you were wrong. It's not Batman that makes you worthwhile. It's the other way around. Never tell yourself anything different. Thanks. Hello, Tim. Hi, old man. One of my favorite lines in the entire show that Bruce ever puts forward because it shows that Terry did all of this on his terms, including how he takes down the Joker, where he does actually realize, I don't know that uh, the original Batman would have ever actually engaged him on these terms. So I'm going to actually talk with him and get under his skin by just saying you know, your whole gimmick kind of sucks, man. Like, I think you are funny, but only because you're pretty pathetic. Uh, I live to to listen to Terry McGinnis talk trash. Yeah. And what I wouldn't give to see a crossover where Terry McGinnis and Peter Parker 
talk trash to each other. Oh yeah, they would never that stop. Be, that, that that scene is Terry at his most Spider-Man. Just just yeah, I'll laugh at you, but only because I think you're kind of pathetic. And also Don't just play the, psychoanalyst with me, boy. <laughs> and that. also just the way that Hamill plays the Joker in that, where he kind of represents that. In a, in a weird sense, the toxic Batman fan who's like, this isn't my Batman. And so he says, like, why? I thought you always wanted Batman to laugh at your jokes. He says, you're not, you're not Batman. Batman. That was the secret weapon. And the, the whole point of the movie is that Terry doesn't have a connection to the Joker. Basically, that what comes down to is Terry doesn't respect the Joker. And it's yeah. kind of great because everyone's like, oh, we can't talk about it. The Joker is on another level. And Jerry's Terry's just like, Ah, he's just a just an old guy in clown makeup, and it it's kind of beautiful. It's just like just take away the mystique yeah. of the Joker what? and just 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 it's, clown on him. It almost feels like for a brief moment, Joker almost develops a grudging minor bit of respect for Terry because you know there's a moment where Terry starts beating the snot out of him, and he's like, "What are you doing, fighting dirty? The real Batman." And he's like, "He's like, told you didn't know me." And then the, and then there's a brief moment where he's like. Funny guy. <laughs> yeah, but you know, just in that moment, Hamill. you feel like, oh, he's almost like developing a little bit of respect for Terry there. It's kind of fascinating look, just looking at it from like the Batman historical preview that the Return of the Joker kind of was doing under the Red Hood before, like four years before they did that. Because let's be honest, Tim Drake is Jason Todd. They just oh, changed yeah. his name. Everything about the character is Jason Todd. And mm. so, you know, the ultimate reveal, oh, he's come back as a villain, is the core concept of Under the Red Hood, which wouldn't yeah. be done in the comics for another four years. Someone on the Discord said this, and I love this observation, that the character that actually most embodies Tim Drake is Max. Yes. Yeah. Her ability to figure out on her own terms that, oh, well, I just kind of figured out, it wasn't hard, I just pulled all the information together and figured out that you're Batman. And then later on, uh, when Terry's like, well, I guess I should tell you who the old man is. It's like, well, it's Bruce Wayne. It's obviously Bruce Wayne, because he's the person you go to work for. And... <laughs> That does tie off the one plot thing that I found awkward about the film, which was they reveal, oh man, like the Joker knows not only who Bruce really was, but who Terry is. And they don't really establish how he knows that because, you know, Tim doesn't know and the old joker certainly wouldn't so how did he figure it out and i think chris you posited the like the same way that max knew that bruce was batman it's like okay well if bruce was the the real batman then the kid he's got playing toady probably is the new one i love that weird joker when i watched this movie with my brother uh, his reaction when we saw the twist of uh, of tim drake is actually the joker is like he's a weird joker <laughs> That's how I refer to this version of the Joker is the weird joke. Dr. Jokel and Mr. Drake? Anybody? Ooh, tough crowd. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's a creepy but, idea. Ultimately, the summary of the point with this film is that for as much as it's a love letter to Mark Hamill and the dynamic that Kevin Conroy and him were able to build together, the real dynamic duo. Turns out the real Jokers were the friends we met along the way. The film is, first and foremost, a love letter to Terry because he fights to do the right thing, not just because that's what Batman should do, 
because it is the right thing and I love him as Batman and I think it's great that the film ends with the final scene is kind of Terry's version of the final scene of Mask of the Phantasm where that one ends with Bruce standing over Gotham seeing the bat signal and flying off to be Batman. This one has the same thing where we look down from below to see Terry over Gotham and it cements that this iconic visual is who Terry is. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashla, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Palmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas and Sarah Montgomery. If you enjoyed this show, you will be happy to know there is a 52-minute cutting class show on our Patreon this week, with discussions on specific episodes that didn't make the final cut, including Heroes, Zeta, The Call, and The Egg Baby. Nobody noticed that Clark was a little bit off. Nobody saw Clark without a shirt. Or, mm, or, they didn't actually uh, bother to even put Bruce and Clark together, because Bruce would have said... Something's wrong with him. He doesn't yeah. sound like Tim Daly at all. He sounds like his dad. <laughs> yeah. That was inspired casting. I hadn't mm. noticed that the first time. We also recorded a section on the Justice League Unlimited episode, Epilogue, which will be in our Justice League show. But the next Bruce Tim produced DC animated series that we'll be covering is one that never gets enough praise, but is absolutely worthy of standing shoulder to shoulder with the greats. Green Lantern. Thank you very, very much, all of you, for coming on. Is there anything any of you would like to plug? And we'll start with Kevin. I'm on YouTube. I do video game-related videos and also, like, unboxing videos of different things I acquire. Uh, my channel is called Kevin the Time Geek 86 Toby. So you can find me on Through the Window, where we have quite a bit of exciting stuff in the pipeline over the next few months. We are continuing our... Uh, chapter-by-chapter examination of Alex's books, New Century, and we are coming to the end of Steamheart, so uh, those are some hard chapters listening. Maybe don't make those your first uh, episodes you go to, but uh, in tandem with that, we are going to be working on the Behind the White Scarves episodes of Panther Soul, where we'll be interviewing Alex, uh, Sharon, Willow, and a whole host of other great people. A couple of weeks' time with Greg on 
top 10 horror films that he has been going through recently. Mm. But uh, specifically related to this, uh, if you are curious about what the Zeta Project is, Alex will not be covering that. We've frankly taxed him more than enough by leading him this far into beyond territory. But over uh, on Through the Wind Door, myself and Nama will be recording a show on that to just talk about all the weird curiosities of that show and just give you the rundown. Because as the only two Zeta Project fans on the planet, <laughs> it's prob- it probably falls to us to make a show about it. Understandable. So, yeah, folks, I'm going to be putting that out on the uh, Patreon as well if uh, you wanted to hear that one. But I would also honestly suggest you start listening to Through the Window, even if that's the only one you listen to, just because Toby and Greg do such a fantastic job with the material they're given. In terms of how the voice was, it is largely just Alex is right. I'm not saying this just to butter him up. Alex's writing does kind of leap off, leap off, off the page at you. Like when I first read Panther Soul, I kind of, you can hear in your head this is how Dashington sounds. I can almost hear the intonation of each different word. This is how he's saying that. You drive a hard bargain, Mr. Nash. I admire that. And this valued piece of our history would, I shall admit, hold pride of place in my collection. So well worth a house across the bay. I'll see what I can do. For this, you will. Chris. The only real place to find me is on other episodes of this show, which is a great show, so you should check them out. <laughs> so I usually use this time to uh, plug uh, my best friend, uh, John Cordes, who most people know as Doc Hobb, on mm-hmm. his podcast, uh, What the Shell, which is all about hacking and how uh, your computer controls your life in ways you don't understand. Excellent new logo as well. What yes. the Shell, folks. I believe Doc Hobbs' podcast has now been brought to a close, but you can still find the episodes that have already been up. A lot of work went into those. Bradford? Uh, mostly you can find me, uh, find the stuff that I write uh, here and there. You can find my uh, short story, Caretaker in the Stars, oh, yeah. in the Distant Bonfires anthology. Mm-hmm. I do Raygun Gothic. I also write Dungeons & Dragons content on DM's Guild. Uh, I just published a heist adventure called Breaking In, you break into a rich person's house and you steal shit. Uh, on Obsidian Portal, if you look for a Dresden Files RPG campaign called The Emerald City, we are a Dresden Files RPG game that has been going for almost 13 years now. And I write a lot of the logs. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you to everyone who's uh, come on this show and made it what they are. Next week, we're talking about the John Wick sequels. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. out.